There are millions of people today that struggle with the idea of hell. This teaching has caused some to have depression, crippling anxiety, feeling like they have no value, and many other difficulties. There are some people who don't even believe God or hell even exists and have lasting negative effects of the idea of hell. Today, I am talking with psychologist Dr. Mark Karras so he can tell us why this happens, how to talk about hell in a helpful way, and what to do if someone is struggling because of hell. Hey everyone, this is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I'm on with Dr. Karras. We're going to be talking about hell, trauma of it, and a lot of un a lot of other fun psychology questions that uh, could really help us out. Okay, how are you doing today, Dr. Karras? I'm doing pretty well. I can't complain. Uh, good to be here with you, Zach, and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. Okay, can you give mm -hmm. us a little bit about your background, education, all that? Sure. Um, well, I have a Master's of Divinity from um, Drew Theological School. It's a Methodist school. A Master's yeah. in Counseling from a school that's a line, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance and a doctorate in psychology. Oh. I'm also an ordained pastor from with the Southern Baptist Church, although I, I think I'm pretty far from uh, Southern Baptist theology at this point. Um, most of my experience has been as a worship pastor. So I worked in a uh, Korean church for four years, a Southern Baptist church for four years ministered in Pentecostal, Charismatic, and Christian and Missionary Alliance churches. And so not only have I worked through hell trauma myself, uh, I have also worked with many clients over the years working through the deleterious effects of hell indoctrination. Wow, okay. That's a long list of experience there. So uh, on the topic of trauma and religious trauma, what is it? Oh, um, I, the word trauma, I, I like this little play on words, but it derives from the Greek word for wound or injury. And psyche is a Latin word for soul. So I'm taking my cue from a psychologist called Russ Harris, who kind of refer phrases the clinical term psychological trauma to soul wound. So it's a more poignant and poetic phrase. So events likely to inflict soul wounds and, you know, uh, some that we're aware of, right? War, mass shootings, domestic violence, natural disasters, uh, stuff of that nature. But they can also um, happen with actual or feared death or severe emotional or physical injury. But really, who among us has not been experienced trauma? But if everyone's experienced trauma, then no one has it becomes so broad you know it's very common oh I'm, I'm traumatized you know that that movie traumatized me um but there's a, definitely a more clinical way of understanding trauma and so while being in this culture we can all have different soul wounds that affects our mind bodies and nervous systems you know the magnitudes of our soul wounds varies as as do their origins so while a, a soul wound often results from a single event, it also has a, a variant, if you want to put it like that, a, so complex trauma. And so complex trauma is, it surpasses the one-time incidences and involves more pervasive exposure tra to traumatic experiences. So with that larger umbrella of trauma, then religious trauma, at least for me, describes the enduring harmful effects caused by my repeated encounters with suffocating religious beliefs, oppressive behaviors from religious people, constricting rules and confining structures, both within Pentecostalism and evangelicalism. And religious trauma, if it is trauma, um, it must have a negative effect on people's nervous system that has lasting adverse effects. Hmm. So with complex trauma, it, it has a more deeper um, consequences to one's identity, uh, to one's view of self and others, and definitely uh, relationships and emotional regulation. So for me and, and many others, the symptoms of religious trauma occurred gradually over time, similar to 
drinking water contaminated with toxic metals, where an individual is unaware of the slow drip poison that slowly seeps into their body. I've also had a couple of uh, uh, jarring religious traumatic events that was likened to sort of an earthquake that instantly shakes an individual's foundation and leaves them struggling to regain their footing in the world. So what's so bad about it is, gosh, trauma can leave us feeling anxious and ashamed and hypervigilant, isolated with a lack of confidence and a secure sense of self. And oftentimes we can feel like we're walking on a waterbed rather than solid ground. So that gives a little bit of a flavor of what trauma is. And of course, religious trauma would, trauma is trauma, but religious trauma would occur in a religious context. Hmm. Oh, wow. Okay, so uh, I did an interview with Dr. Darren Slade. We talked about religious trauma as a whole. We're going to get into the a little bit overlapping stuff here. Um, yeah. But today we're going to talk specifically about mm. hell, yes. maybe a couple other topics. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> specifically on hell, yes. what is, in your opinion, what is traumatizing about hell? Mm. Well, uh, so first I think it's important to start off that we're talking about, and this is what I learned because I was, I was writing the book on hell and the religious trauma of hell. But then I realized I can't separate hell from what I've called the diabolical trinity. Hmm. So we're talking about the unholy trinity. Uh, okay, I know it's a, a little provocative here. Hmm. But the unholy trinity of traumatizing beliefs in a tormenting hell a wrathful God in human depravity. Hmm. So these doctrines are profoundly intertwined because what I realized is you can't have hell, well, eternal conscious torment kind of hell without a wrathful God who created it. And you hmm. can't have a hell without evil and sinful creatures to be put there. So that's an important point to share. There are many folks in different spaces and places who experience the trauma of hell. Um, and there are Christians who can experience this, you know, many are ex-evangelicals or the de-churched, but there are many who view hell and eternal conscious torment as a theological treasure that glorifies God. So for them, the concept of hell makes perfect sense. Mm. So given God's holiness and perfect justice, you know, as one contemporary theologian put it, um, to sin against an infinitely glorious being is an infinitely heinous offense that is worthy of an infinitely heinous punishment. For Christians who firmly believe in their salvation and are certain they are spared from hell, basking in the love of God, they don't experience trauma. So just it's an important point. There's a lot of people who don't experience any religious trauma due to hell beliefs, and they are filled with mm-hmm. gratitude for their opportunity to enter into heaven and spend eternity with Christ. However, there are Christians who have a subjective experience of uncertainty, grappling with doubts about whether or not they've met the requirements for salvation. And it's impossible to be a Christian and still struggle with the fear of going to hell. I've met and as a therapist work with uh, plenty of people who do and have. So there are also those who have transitioned from believing in eternal conscious torment to embracing the concept of conditional immortality or universalism, and they may still wrestle with the challenge of no longer holding their previous beliefs. Hmm. So then there are individuals whom this book is intended that they are the more de-churched and ex-evangelicals and those who are deliberately distance themselves from conservative evangelicalism. And I I did that specifically because... uh, I wanted to be a voice and and so because there were a lot of people coming into my practice saying, Mark, I've experienced religious trauma, but I don't want to talk about Jesus. I don't want you to give me any Bible verses. <laughs> and I said, gosh, um, there's no writings. There's no books to help these particular people. So it was quite the challenge for me to not have any uh, um, uh how do you put this sort of cataphatic God talk, you know, very explicit, positive God talk and, and scripture verses to bolster points, <laughs> which was quite an experiment for me. And I, I did learn a few things by doing that. And um, so do I think that ultimately believing in an angry, 
punitive and perfection imperfection phobic God who sees all and knows all who can with a snap of a finger violently punish us in this life if we do something wrong something common in the Old and New Testament and can send us to a place called hell when we die where we will be tormented a tormented uh, in eternity without any possibility of peace joy and comfort can that be traumatic to some you better believe it can Zach and if I may just to get a little flavor because some people are like Mark like they literally think like, why, why are you making a big deal out of this? You know, like do really people become that traumatized from this? Let me share a quote from Christian, Crispin Mayfield, who wrote uh, the author of, uh, he wrote um, Attached to God. Uh, the book came out in the last couple of years. So he expresses the trauma of hell indoctrination very well. Hmm. He, he writes, I've always been terrified of hell. Remember that he's talking about this as a Christian. I could never quite relax with God because I always worried that in the end, it turned out I was a goat, not a sheep. Hmm. This fear has always hung over my head, causing me to white knuckle my spiritual life. What if I didn't have true faith? What if between now and my death, I made some terrible decisions or ended up renouncing my faith? Hmm. As much as I wanted to feel safe in the everlasting arms, I knew that I wasn't. If anyone can go to hell, then I can go to hell which meant I could never relax. Hmm. So I just wanted to share a, a few things about, you know, why this unholy trinity, and I don't, I don't mean to um, disrespect anybody by using that, just call it, I think of it as a threefold interrelated doctrines of a, a, a primarily a wrathful God, primarily a view of humanity as a sinful human beings, and primarily as hell as a place of eternal conscious torment and uh, as Randall Rouser would put it a uh, torture yeah right um and just for clarity you're not saying you're not mm -hmm. when you say unholy trinity you're not thinking of Jesus God and you know the Holy Spirit you're, you're thinking of doctrine and that's what you've called the unholy trinity <laughs> um it, indeed it, it yeah. three trinity literally means three trifold so three <laughs> interrelated beliefs now i'm ta talking about the the father son and holy spirit <laughs> um so uh so you talked about like what someone can conclude obviously there's a long list of things people can, can conclude from mm -hmm. these three beliefs here um, but you, you also in another video, uh, you, you gave a really good quote of like what someone can conclude and I wanted to read it. So it says, mm -hmm. um, like, you know, this, well, well actually I want to read it and then I want you to give me, um, why you think that can be so dangerous. So, okay. um, so, you know, this is a very typical belief, you know, maybe no one believes exactly like this, but it's a very typical popular belief. So, you know, it is humans are sinful, they're evil, good for nothing delinquents who are deserving of the wrath of God and ought to be punished in hell for eternity because of their wicked ways. God, like a vampire needing pure blood to be satisfied and satiated and content, would be happy with human beings and remit their sins if God received a perfect meal of pure blood coming from a sinless person. So God, who had pity on us, sent himself. If people believe on this perfect sinless sacrifice, otherwise known as Jesus, then they can avoid their original fate of unending torture and blissfully go to a heavenly paradise for eternity. So, you know, mm. I, I don't know. I personally don't know of anyone who says like, you know, God's like a vampire. But at the uh, same yes, time, yes. it's certainly a reasonable conclusion someone can come to that yeah. God needs this blood. Like, you know, a big question is why did they why did you need blood and sacrifice in the begin with in, in the Old Testament? Um, so it's a certainly a good, uh, an important question, but what, spe what specifically would make someone come to this conclusion and to, uh, like what's so bad about it? Mm hmm. Well, um, hmm. I, you know, it's an interesting quote you have now. It, obviously it's using metaphorical and poetic language, but it is this sense that people have been taught. Listen, I, I come from a Pentecostal background and the way that they talked about hell, when I say like with an angry, like literally frothing at the mouth, uh, just talking about this God who, who really does despise us. And if we don't get it right with this God, mm. that um, not only was a sense that God can inflict harm in this life, 
through, uh, you know, his oddly to think about it this way, through angels or demons. Um, uh, be, yeah, that's a whole conversation of itself. But God can also have us spend eternity in hell. So it was this every week. I remember it. It was sometimes we had church three, four days a week back then. And to the altar calls, I remember it was almost like begging, begging God, crying out to God, save me a worthless piece of garbage. Like, like I might as well have been a rag doll who, who could have been thrown in the flames of a fire that who in myself and, and other people, there was no, um, goodness within us so much so that we would be thrown in a fire. Uh, well, whatever eternal conscious torment was right. <laughs> but, um, so it was very real talk in the whole idea of the, the blood and the vampire esque sensibilities is God was so angry and wrathful that the only way that this God could be appeased if he literally had pure blood and the only one who now I know it's, well, it's a good question. Is it metaphorical or did God literally need a spotless without blemish blood to be appeased in that way? But the way it's talked about is, no, God needed that to no longer be angry uh, at humanity because then he could see the humanity through the prism of Christ. But yes, this stuff, you know, not only is it talked about in the qualitative literature, in other words, they're looking in research and having conversations with people whom these kinds of beliefs have affected them. But just think of it, you know, the, the idea of this God can harm us in that way. It would be thinking of, uh, you know, like if a child had a parent who could physically um, hurt them because they did something wrong. And there's plenty of cases like this. It is physical abuse. Um, and it's torturing, it's it's tormenting. The amount of shame, the amount of self-criticism, the amount of anxiety and hypervigilance and trauma, thinking that your dad, and it's quite confusing, because one minute dad can say, hey, you want an ice cream? The next minute he can beat the crap out of your mom and you for, you know, spilling milk on the floor. But that's, I hate to say it, but that's the sensibility that some people have gotten through teachings and sermons and books that in a sense that that is how God rolls. Uh, if you're not holy, if you're not pure in this way, um, that's what can happen. You can experience uh, punishment in this life or the life to come. So of course that could affect someone's nervous system. As a brief side note, I want to make it abundantly clear that if you are someone that has been affected by religious trauma, you are completely justified in feeling the way you do. You are not damaged goods, and there is hope. Additionally, if you feel like one of the theological views we talked about just can't be right because of what has been said, I'd highly recommend looking into other views that are backed by Scripture, of which there are many, that plenty of God-loving Christians believe. Feel free to comment in the description if you want some recommendations. There's going to be a lot of people that are like, all right, uh, you know, the, <laughs> it's just a belief, man. Just it's it's just, why would that make like someone freak out and, you know, have like PTSD or something? What? Yeah. How, how does that make any sense that just some belief in where you would go could do something like that? Right, right. Well, you know, we're talking about beliefs, but beliefs have a lot of power. Um, you know, there's an interesting I didn't talk, I don't, maybe I mentioned this in the book, but as far as what we believe, we've heard of placebo effect, but there's also nocebo effect, which is if we believe harmful things can happen, they can happen to us. Hmm. Um, and some people explain that, you know, when there's a voodoo death or some shaman casts a curse on somebody in the village, you know, how do we explain the fact that the guy could drop dead, you know, a day later? Um, some people make sense of that through, yes, beliefs can have real uh, powerful deleterious effects on one's person's mind and, and body. And so an increase of glucocorticoids, uh, stress hormones, and potentially leading to this panic attack to maybe a heart attack. I mean, 
it's not um, outside the range of possibility, but beliefs affect us. You know, mm. it's just like we can be walking through a, a trail and we could think we see a snake, but it's actually a rope. But the fact that we thought we saw a snake, we jump up, we get scared, we get frightened. It was just a belief. The belief was even wrong, mm. but it had an effect on our nervous system. So imagine thinking about a God, you know, like, so I, I say it this way, beliefs associated with the trauma of hell persist personally, not because they are grounded in truth, but because they're so deeply disturbing, uh, causing our nervous mm -hmm. system to encode them as enduring potential threats. Mm -hmm. So the human brain, specifically the amygdala, which is believed to play a central role in processing fear and dangerous stimuli, carries the distressing message. Um, even though I may not currently hold this belief, I'm unwilling to forget it just in case it happens to be true. All right. So this primitive aspect of the brain is primarily concerned with our survival and safeguarding us from harm rather than being preoccupied with objective accuracy. Hmm. So deciding to relinquish the beliefs in original sin uh, or primarily sinful human beings and eternal conscious torment is uh, akin to attempting to persuade the brain. I think I share this in the book, long experiencing, let's say, a uh, a lion attack that that ferocious creature wasn't truly a lion despite the existence of scars that would you know imply otherwise so individuals affected by hell trauma who were informed by authoritative figures people in power that they were god's instruments the god's spokespeople and we believed it i believed it hook line and sinker i and so we believed it, that we were inherently wicked sinners deserving of this eternal torment. So it's challenging to erase these occurrences from our memory and discard the traumatic jolt of fear that coursed through our nervous system. Hmm. So th this gets into, yeah, the nervous system and uh, beliefs have that kind of power. You know, uh, think about uh, in, a, in another way of someone growing up believing that they're a piece of garbage, that they're a loser because they constantly heard that from their parents, right? Now, they could be apart from their parents. And I'm working with people in their 40s and 50s who left their parents a long time ago who still believe that they're a piece of garbage, so infused with shame that they're a loser, that they're no good, thus doing things what they believe no good losers do, hmm. uh, in turn perpetuating a cycle. and. Hmm sometimes addictive cycle where they feel so bad about themselves, they need to feel good, they engage in a substance or whatever their baby bottle is um, to self-soothe and then they feel terrible and then they feel more shame and then so it creates this yep. addictive loop. So yeah, wow. beliefs have power. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, an obvious question is why exactly do some people have this issue? Um, you know, one pastor can talk to, you know, a whole congregation and a few, you know, or a bunch or whatever, a lot of the people can be perfectly fine, have no issue with it at all. And then other people mm -hmm. can have lasting effects of trauma after that. What explains that in your opinion? I think it's a brilliant question. I think, and I've, I've talked about this with some colleagues. I, this is the emerging research right now with religious trauma, okay. because religious trauma really is in its infancy. Um, at least the research around it. Mm -hmm. But I, I'd like to know that from a research standpoint, what makes someone predisposed to internalizing this stuff at such a deep level that they can experience this level of trauma? I have some hunches, but I'd like to see this borne out in research. Yeah. So this gets into insecure attachment styles. Mm -hmm. uh, this gets into, you know, relationships with, with parents and uh, modeling and you know the secure attachment that would come uh, and and thus a view of self as positive and good um, uh, or the correlation between self-compassion and uh and religious trauma you know um, in other words i wonder to the degree that someone is very kind to themselves has a lot of self-love is not hard on themselves but see things as an opportunity of growth but not necessarily because they are rotten at their core even though they were um, exposed to these kind of doctrines, did that become sort of a, 
a mitigating factor in not allowing these things to penetrate so deeply. There's a little bit of research on personality. It's not definitive though, hmm. but most, this is anecdotal, so I'm not gonna say this is research, but most of the people that I know with this level of trauma, I have found them to be very sensitive, very expansive, creative, um, maybe more right brain than left brain. Um, Josh Packard, the sociologist who did a lot of work in the de-churched, said that they were some of the most, well, this is sort of the de-churched in and of itself, were some of the most active, uh, passionate members of the church. So I just, I'm just so curious about that. I, I'd like to see some research on what predisposes someone to take the sin so deeply. Like me, all I can say for myself is when I heard about this stuff, I remember I, I believed it. Like, here's a perfect example. I have a twin brother. And not, not to, uh, it was probably a month ago, we had a conversation. He says, Mark, I, I don't understand. I was taught this stuff too. I was in the same church you were in, but I didn't leave with that kind of trauma, hmm. right? I just sort of uh, evolved and and just saw it as, yeah, people maybe didn't have the, uh, you know, he believes something differently about hell, uh, but he's very much more conservative uh, than me, but he just didn't, he didn't carry that over. You know, he said, Mark, why you? Uh, all I could say is for myself is I was the more sensitive uh, out from him. Um, uh, I was more, I was a twin brother, but I was older by two and a half minutes. And even <laughs> with the abuse that happened in our home, I was the one who took the brunt of it while he uh, went upstairs and he, he was sort of aloof. But I just remember absorbing, taking it in uh, when my stepfather was beating my mother, um, punching her. I, rem and I remember I was the one who went in the middle of it, like, and I got hit myself. Like, I just remember myself being very passionate. And so I don't know what the difference is, but he is more left brain. He was more of a jock. Uh, he much more rational. So that's just our story. It's, it's just so interesting. We grew up, uh, we went to the same, nobody can't. He became a Christian earlier than I did. I became Christian at 21, but we were in the same church, the Pentecostal church, and so different. I remember I was so bound up in legalism that and fear that I, drinking soda, I thought I would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit and be in danger of hellfire. Now, if I, I told that to my brother and he's like, like it, he can't even fathom it. Like it doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> really? So I just thought I just think that's interesting, you know? Yeah, that's that's absolutely crazy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It is. Interesting. Wow. Um, okay. So, <clears throat> um, so you know, you're saying that you know hell is or can be traumatizing. Um, you know, it seems like in your brother's case, it wasn't traumatizing. I guess. Right. Would you, would you say that? Yeah. So yeah, I would say it was not traumatizing because to have trauma, you have to have lasting adverse effects. Okay. And it, it didn't for him. Yeah, at least at least hell indoctrination. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting, though, because, you know, I mean, it probably be obvious in this case, but I mean, you can still have trauma and not necessarily notice it. Um, right, right. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, he still hasn't noticed it after a very long time. Uh, <laughs> right. But, but you know, if one was to look at at least the trauma of hell indoctrination, mm -hmm. we can say objectively that he he didn't have these fear-based responses okay. to yeah. the right. fear of going to hell. Mm -hmm. But you're right. There are many people who walk around with trauma and mm -hmm. not really know that it's it's trauma. Right. And even people who yeah come to therapy, you know, like oh. Gosh, that's what it is. Whether it's mm. religion, whether it's through parental wounds, so some people can walk around with trauma and not know it for sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, uh, D Darren Sl Slade in their research or whatever, it was like nineteen percent said they didn't have trauma, and then they go on to list all of their traumatic <laughs> mm. uh, <laughs> symptoms. <laughs> um, yes. But uh, 
not, not of course not that i'm doubting you or your brother of course um but uh yeah so so you you know you're, you're saying that like it can be traumatizing at least that's right it can be but at the same time um mm -hmm. you know obviously whether it's traumatizing or not uh you know it's, it's still important to talk about to a lot of people and you just simply yes. saying it's traumatizing yeah. doesn't mean that we should just stop talking yet about that i would assume so what mm -hmm. in your opinion is the best way to approach that for people that think that it's still an important doctrine to talk about ah okay um well yeah it's interesting i was actually i was actually anti-hell before I was writing this book. Okay. Uh, and then when I came into contact with um, some uh, Russian Orthodox writers and Thomas Ord's Relentless Love View and more Universalist's view, okay. I was like, oh my goodness. I, there's something that felt true or, or something resonated with me a little bit more like i thought to myself i wish i heard about these views initially as i think it would have made more sense and i would have had less trauma you know just the idea of if god now this would be maybe more thomas ford's approach you know if god is loving and if god's love is uncontrolling uh then in this you know in the eastern eastern orthodox that hell in the afterlife in this way for people who didn't want anything to do with God, it is more of a purification process, right? So it's not necessarily a place of torment uh, in the sense of God is tormenting people or there's demons around and, and trying to harm people. But God's love can be felt in, in a profound way uh, to some people as torment, as a way that the unconformed aspects of people's souls that were not conformed to the image of Christ can this when it is purified can feel very painful and I thought well if God is love then could hell be a place where God says listen if you don't want to be in relationship with me um, listen I'm going to create this place and it's not going to be a place of torture but if hell is this place where you all can chill well, I'll be, listen, I'm not going to give up on you. This is relentless, a love approach that my love will be so uncontrolling that I will love you to the degree that you're willing and, and open to receive my love. And that will be this place called hell where people will go. I thought like, wow, this stuff is interesting. I, I maybe have, it would have been a little bit more palatable for me. Hmm. But I, I, well, I think preachers and teachers should be able to be congruent and preach the way they want. I, I do believe in uncontrolling love. I just wish they didn't sound like Jonathan Edwards, uh, who, as you know, you know, he was famous for his lines, you know, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one who holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He has a pure eyes and a bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. I do wish people would not talk that way. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, talk, teach about hell and God's view. I, I do think that the emotional trauma can reduce by making God out, uh, you know, by not making God out to be a grotesque composite of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong. So if preachers and teachers consider the state of development people were in as they were teaching on hell, were mindful of their tone and talked about their afterlife mm -hmm. with an attitude of humility and compassion while presenting God's nature of love front and center, I do think religious trauma of hell reductionation would be reduced. Hmm. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Although I do think that sensibility has certainly affected the church. I do find that people are less inclined to sound like uh, Jonathan Edwards. Um, although in the, in the holiness churches and, and some Pentecostal churches, I, I do find it's still a little oh. bit of the, the rhetoric. Ouch. Yeah, no, it's really interesting to think about because, you know, he was supposed to be like a big reformer and like he, he right. converted, you know, converted or whatever. So many people 
um, which <clears throat> I guess oh, that talks yeah. about how uh, influencing and uh, I guess convincing it is to use fear, right? Absolutely. The, the fear, yeah, the, uh, a carrot is not so effective as the stick uh, sometimes. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's pretty profound. Uh, yeah, what would what would hell talk be without fear language around it? Hmm. And what when you think of all the revivals I've been to, many revivals, uh, tent revivals. Um, I, I do remember though there was a statistic of how many people stayed in the faith and went through a form of discipleship okay. uh, throughout all those revivals, and I remember it being very low, like hmm. somewhere but lower than five percent. So really, yeah, I thought that was wild. So what, while they may have made, uh, uh, you know, a, oh my God, you know, a very tearful, passionate uh, altar call, you know, had that kind of experience. Uh, I'm not sure the research bears that it had, they, they stayed and remained Christian for a, a long period of time and, and were discipled. Yeah. So, I mean, basically a big get out of hell free card. Uh, and then um you you get traumatized in the process great <laughs> yeah but listen can i say something sure, though I, I i have a lot of compassion i i i have a lot of compassion for people who were taught this for pastors who preach this they they still preach this i like i i can understand in passages of the bible where they can get a view of god in this way mm-hmm um, and it was passed down to them, you know, by other preachers, and that was passed down from. So I have a lot of compassion. It, it's just, uh, but I also have another part that gets very angry, and when I realize how many people have been harmed hmm. by these kinds of theologies. So, like, I get where they're coming from. It hmm. makes sense. Uh, I don't think most of them are cruel. I, I do think that there's a few preachers who can be manipulative and coercive and can be authoritarian kind of pastors who can use their power to harm. But I, I don't see that to be uh, the, a large amount of, of pastors uh, who are talking about hell in this way. Some sure. of them genuinely care. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And in no way to, in no way do I mean to shame anyone. I totally I think it is um, for a lot of the people, these, or most of these people I'd say is it's completely justified. Um, to to come to a lot of these conclusions and even the people that are going through all this you know depression or you know fear and all that you know who have the effects of trauma um in no way do you know do what i ever say that they're like you know damaged goods or anything like that is that something that you would relate with yeah i mean again i i look through everything through a lens of compassion mm -hmm. you know i'm not harshly judging the pastors and preachers who are talking about this kind of stuff in this way um I uh, I also wish that they could be open and mindful to the effects of the doctrines that they do teach. And like I said, I mean, keeping in mind even stage of development and where people are at and, and how, listen, if you believe in hell, mm -hmm. um, even conditional immortality or even eternal conscious torment, I just think there's a way to talk about it that's with humility like I've, I've heard people talk about hell in a way, even though they believe in eternal conscious torment, that felt more human to me, that felt um, like it was coming from their heart that they really cared. So I felt their compassion and humanness. Mm -hmm. And that's very attractive to me as far as the angry, you know, uh, turn and burn. Uh, you know, I just... I I am uh, not very appreciative of that kind of angry rants uh, in that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, an, an obvious question in this is like, okay, say mm -hmm. it's harmful, but what if it's true? Um, like, even you know the, what you consider to be like almost you know ridiculous or like the John Edward Jonathan Edwards type stuff. Like, mm -hmm. if it is true, you know, you're still going to have a lot of people that are like, hey, it's true. If it's true, we should say it. So, yeah, what, I mean, what, what do you what do you think about that? Like, yeah, yeah. do you think they should just like not talk about it? Um, I would no. I, well, 
I'm under the persuasion that, listen, talk about what you want to talk about. Love, <laughs> love. listen, I, I would never be, I, I have viewpoints that say, um, like I said, I was just mentioning, it's it's how we talk about it. Okay. For, for me, um, just like, you know, as I work with couples and it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Okay. You can speak truth. Uh, but are you saying it in an, ag an aggressive manner mm. or you're, in other words, are you speaking out of reactivity mm. or are you speaking out of vulnerability? Mm. Um, are you talking about this with an angry filled heart yeah. and an angry judgmental filled heart? Or are you talking about it in a way that's, Hey, I love you. And I love the word of God. And this is how I'm seeing it. And I, I would even appreciate more uh, epistemological humility or uh, biblical humility that said, to be honest, there are through three main views that, you know, people talk about uh, that talked about in church history, mm -hmm. you know, universalism, conditional immortality or annihilationism and eternal conscious torment. Mm -hmm. Let me let me present the views to you. But this is for our church. And as the shepherd and the pastor of this church, this is how I see it. Like I, I to me, that's just sexy, man. I, I love humility. I love openness, compassion. Mm. But to say it in a way that's harsh and judgmental, and it just feels so disgusting to me. Mm. And not only that, but hell has also, the conversations around it, the way it's been talked about is certain sins have been elevated above others. So then these sins get linked automatically to hell. And so that there's some people who become so oppressed and marginalized by hell talk while others with other sins, it's not even talked about, you know, hmm. not talked about greed or pride. You know, it's let's let's talk about homosexuality. And that could be, you know, some pastors bent and they talking about it every other week. And um, so I just think the way we talk about it, our tone, our timing, sensitivity to stage of mm. development. Talk about it if you got to talk about it. Mm. If you believe it's the word of God, please do so. But do so in a way that keeps other people's humanity and psyches in mind. Mm. I appreciate that. So you, you mentioned development. I would assume you're talking about like kids or whatever. Um, mm. So specifically like on that topic, children, I mean, <clears throat> is there a specific age where it's not appropriate to talk about something like that? I mean, obviously, like, you get all these children's books that seem to only talk about the, you know, the flood, killing a bunch of people, and the conquest, and all that. But, like, hell specifically, is there a specific time when you should talk about that or not? Or Yes, you know, absolutely. I'm going to give the definitive answer. Okay. Um, never. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm kidding, but I, I'm, I'm personally, uh, I'm not going to uh -huh. be teaching my son, my son about the fact that and, and listen i just had a conversation with somebody a few days ago okay. um, where he was literally telling me that he believes he has some i won't say the number of children he has a, few, a bunch of children okay and he was telling me his theology that he, he said mark yes we are evil our hearts are, are deceitfully wicked above all things there's no good within us all our righteousness is as filthy rags. That is the truth of who we are. And I said, I, I said, my goodness, are you, are you teaching your children this? And I said, with pain in my heart, I hope to God that he never tells his children these ideas. Personally, I think it's sick. I, I do think it's twisted. I think it's harmful. I think it's toxic. There's a way to talk about humanity uh in in the way that like waves and you know could be uh waves and particles here we we can be sinners and we could be saints you know mm -hmm. but to talk about human beings as that no that's who you are in your core and christ has come to save us and you know to appease an angry wrathful god so that god would no longer look at us in that way but look at us through the prism of christ and what christ has done so i don't know but this is just for me but 
So I don't know. I don't know what the definitive answer is for people to talk about hell. But early on, um, just like I, hey, people, they don't realize how this stuff affects kids. But like I said, some kids could be okay. Oh, that's a great story. (laughs) Noah's Ark, you know, wow, look at the animals. And it's, wow, God is so like, wow, God's made a speaking and made this, helped to make a boat. And like, but, you know, the, the implicit conversation here, guys, is like, babies were killed and old grandmothers were drowned and like this isn't a fun event you know so i don't know what a proper age is for to talk about Mm. these very uh violent you know i mean shoot even even movies have pg-13 and ratings to it so i don't know i don't know what the answer is to the stage of development Mm. Uh, you know pg-13 wait till they're 13 and teenagers and then (laughs) But gosh, even if they're talking about it, can they talk about it in a way where God's love is front and center? Mm-hmm. And it's it's talked about in a way where, yes, there is a truth here that if you truly don't want to be in relationship with God, that because God is so loving, God says, listen, you, you have your way. You know, I, I'm not going to control you. I'm not going to force you to be in relationship with me. So, guys, God created this place, you know, this place called hell. And um, people can go there if they want to. You know, I don't know. I don't know how they would talk about it. I mean, that's not particularly how I'm going to talk about it. But if people were going to talk about it, whatever love looks like front and mm. center, uh, valuing uh, people and where they're at in their space mm. and place of development would be really cool if they can. So specifically, like I want to get into detail so people can really understand like why that can be harmful. Why is it like bad or why would it be harmful to tell a child, hey, you know, you're deceitfully wicked. You're mm-hmm. you're basically evil from the moment you were born. Uh, you know, you're always going to sin. And the only reason you would never not sin is because of God. Like, why is that telling a child that like, OK, but then right. later it's it's perfectly fine or whatever? Yeah. Um, so why is that harmful? I, you know, I, I just think in my mind, like. Specifically for a child. Yeah, but I'm thinking, guys, let's be simple here. Think of a, a mother or father telling a child this when they're young about. Listen, we don't even need to think about this. This is in the literature. People, people, children are abused sexually, physically, and emotionally. There's such a thing called emotional abuse. Mm. Uh, These adverse childhood experiences that the research shows that just it increases all possibilities for different pathologies and depression and anxiety and, uh, you know, uh, trait shame, meaning uh, there's a difference between state shame and trait shame. Uh, Trait shame meaning it's just in it's indicable. Um, how do I say this? It's just who a person is, right? It's just entwined with their core sense of self. But of course, it would have this effects. You're, you know, that there's a God who can punish you violently. That if some people say God is watching you, what is the implicit message that God can harm you in some way? Hmm. And, and this is talked about in the, in the literature that kids were taught this by parents. And when they're uh, having these studies in the qualitative literature about, hey, how has religious trauma affected you? Yeah, I was, you know, I was taught this stuff and then intertwine this. And I know, you know, that many people can have different views on this. But if it's intertwined with their sexuality, uh, listen, some people have killed themselves because they were told by their parents and by their churches that God, like, People have held signs up. God abhors you. Hmm. God, God hates homosexuals. You are destined to hell in eternity for being gay. Like kids have killed themselves because of these ideas that were shared with them, not only from their parents, but by their church communities. So, yes, I mean, these beliefs do have large uh, ramifications, so why uh, we could say it simply because it increases shame and shame is this uh, flawed, tainted sense of self. I'm no good. I'm, we know that out of this place of shame, 
can come harsh self-criticism, meaning these thoughts and ideas that they can walk around and mm-hmm. constantly in a fear-based uh, experience of shaming themselves and, oh, you're a loser. You're not going to be a great Christian. God doesn't love you. The church doesn't love you. You're never going to make it. You're never going to amount to anything. That's these self-critical thoughts. And then what do people do to cope with this shame and, and, and transcendence of self-criticism? Give me some cocaine. You know, let me, uh, you know, smoke pot several hours a day. You know, let me, I don't know, I've worked with people that watching porn eight hours a day. Uh, cut themselves, whatever it is, it's this people are doing things to help cope with the internal experiences of feeling like God doesn't love them, uh, parents doesn't love them, they don't love themselves, society doesn't love them. Uh, so it's, yeah, this stuff has a lot of uh, nasty effects with hmm. some people and not everybody. Sure. So <clears throat> on the topic of God not loving them, God, you know, hating gays or whatever, like obviously the Bible says that all, all over the place. God loves uh-huh. you. Um, you know, people don't typically talk about that in this discussion. Like nobody ever says, hey, you've got value, you have worth, but also if you make the wrong choice to go into hell – um, but at the same time, which maybe that might be a good idea, maybe it not, might not be, but that typically yeah. doesn't be isn't said in those types of conversations. So, um, like it's, back to the previous question. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. why, um, like, why would people conclude this? Like, hey, you don't have value. God hates you. When the Bible clearly says that. So, you know, that's what people are going to think. So, why would what would you respond to that? You know, I think some people, to be fair, in the same sentence, they can say, well, God hates you, but God loves you by sending his son. Um, so to be fair, there, there are people who talk that way, okay. but there are some people who so emphasize right. the depravity of human beings that it, it becomes that's the, the, the major talking points, right? I will say, um, this may be provocative, but <laughs> I... I uh, you know, there are some people who say, well, God detests you, but God so loves you and the world that he gave his only son. They could say that in the same language. I can only, in the same sentence, I can only say that it's very reminiscent for me as, as, as someone who's worked with uh, domestic abuse uh, victims, mm-hmm. where they would be with partners, um, you know, I love you. I really care about you, but if you don't do what I say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna punch you in the. They would, you know, uh, talk about violence and, and punishment, and but I love you. But if only if you do what I say, oh, we can live together in peace, and I'll, I'll take care of you, and you'll see, and you, you'll, you'll live a good life. Like this is, uh, well, I don't know, gaslighting, disorienting. Uh, excuse my language, a mind f. Uh, this, for some people, it is so, uh, it, it really is very confusing. Um, you know, how in one breath could you say I'm detestable, no good, mm-hmm. nothing good within me, and I'm loved? I mean, can you imagine a parent saying that to their kid and not expecting that child to grow up a little wonky? Uh, I mean, come on, it just like, logically, it just makes sense. So then it gets a mark, well, how do we talk about sin? Like, you know, how do we talk about that? God can get angry. I, you know, I do think, Hey, there's, again, there's a place to talk about this. Uh, there's a way to talk about this. Um, but I just, the way it's framed sometimes, I I personally uh, think it could be framed in a different way. Like even the notion of sin, if somebody taught me initially that sin, yes, God hates sin, but I I wasn't really taught why it was sort of mostly because God was sort of pure and, and so holy that God couldn't stand it instead of saying, Mark, you know, God is love and God loves relationships so much that, you know, you may have heard me talk about sin. Sin is anything that distorts fractures or wounds relationships. Hmm. And so the reason why God talks about sin so much is, is because God cares about relationships. And when God asks us to do some things and asks us not to do some things, it's because he genuinely cares mm-hmm. 
about the state and quality of our relationships. There, thus, the greatest commandment is to love God and our, you know, neighbors or love ourselves, right? It's relational at its core. So I wish that somebody initially talked to me about sin, uh, missing the mark uh, when it comes to the ideal of love and how it affects relationships in a loving way instead of the angry preacher frothing at the mouth, just equating it uh, just all with God just being so holy and so punishing that God can't even look at it, even though God was like hanging out and making mud pies uh, in, in the beginning making people out of clay, getting his hands dirty. And, yeah, there you go. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I appreciate that answer. So we talked about a lot of different topics, but specifically for the people that are in this place of, you know, trauma and all that kind of stuff, a lot of people are going to say, hey, just, you know, read Bible verses that'll heal, heal your anxiety, you know, praying to God, mm -hmm. going to church, every possible chance you can get constantly, uh, you know, seeking research from God. What exactly, um, like, does that help? And one, does that help? And two, uh, what, is there anything better we can do? Um, yeah, so this, if I put my, brain in in solely a Christian context where so I'm sort of a dual minded person of <laughs> okay. the the best of psychology and the best of theology. So I would answer that in sort of a, a, a parallel track with some integration uh, of ways that people can heal from hell indoctrination or hell trauma. Okay. So yeah, I do think that people well, here's the thing. Um, some of the things you said that can be helpful. Uh, some, so when it comes to healing hell trauma, it has to be done on the nervous system level. Okay. Uh, facts can't heal the tracks. Information does not necessitate transformation. So repeating Bible verses, you know, people can repeat that all day. But if it's not penetrating the trauma, which is embedded within the nervous system itself, then really it's just food for the prefrontal cortex or the logical uh, command center of the brain. That's why there can be people, you know, say, I, you know, I, I know the Bible, I, I know that Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so, you know, but in the heart they can sing, you know, Jesus loves them, but not me because I am so dirty. You know, we can sing different melodies in our mind and in our hearts, different truths. So repeating Bible verses, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, I think it could be helpful, maybe done in a way that's experiential, hmm. to take verses, for example, uh, in a Christian context. One of the ways to heal um, a version of God that is primarily wrathful, who wants to punish you and pulverize you in some way because you have sinned or you don't have it all together it's a beautiful, and I've done this work where let's go to the story of the prodigal God. Some people call it the prodigal son. Prodigal means extravagantly, uh, extravagantly wasteful uh, and rashful and wasteful. So I think God was that with his love. So taking that image of God, as opposed to the image of that angry uh, Zeus kind of character, but being able to slow down, do some imaginative work, where the t we take these scriptures and imagine yourself being experienced by God in this way. As a God who in your sin would still be the one who's looking a far away off. The God who the text says, while he saw the son, he ran to him. The, the, the God, you know, one of the only explicit parabolic images of the father that Jesus gave. And I know there's some other context with the Jewish people in Israel as well. But then a God who wrapped his arms around him, who the text says literally kissed his son, right? And, and threw a party for the dude. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the kid who was steeped in shame uh, and is steeped in an image of God who may have not been a, a perfectly whole or healthy image, but then immersed. So having someone experience this 
this image, slowing it down, going into the imagination and allowing the Holy Spirit to bring these truths to this person in this way as they can themselves imagine the Father embracing them in this way. For me, that's a better sort of uh, approach rather than just, let me, uh, yeah, First Corinthians someone says, right. And then Galatians 5, 3 says, so, but yeah, so I think there could be great spiritual practices to do and there could be wonderful um, practices and principles from neuroscience and psychology uh, that can be very helpful to help uh, bring uh, healing and wholeness to people's hearts in this way. Okay, so um, I've actually heard some, or I've heard, yeah, some psychologists say that like doing these verses, praying, like can't actually hear, heal religious trauma. Uh, what do you think would make them conclude that and why do you disagree? Yeah, that's going back to what I was trying to convey is if it's just done with the prefrontal cortex or just done in a rote way, you're not getting to the nervous system level. I see. Mm -hmm. So any any work with scripture, in my experience, it has to be done in an experiential level, right? So, uh, you know, like I said, facts will not heal the tracks of the traumatized <laughs> yeah. nervous system. So doing verses in an imaginative, experiential manner, lighting up those neural pathways that are positive, feel good, that people can get a felt sense, a somatic experience of the positive nature of God through these verses, mm. that is going to be the only way that's going to be really helpful. If it's just repeating uh, some verses in a yeah. logical, rational way, that's not going to be very effective. So therefore, I would agree for those people who are probably uh, thinking about it in that way. That makes sense. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so I mean, you, you briefly talked about it, but can you go into more detail um, as far as like getting help from professionals? Uh, so like, I mean, what do you what do you recommend? Just literally Googling it. Who's in your area? Who's a therapist? Is there a specific mm -hmm. therapist that you recommend, like the type of therapist or what do you what do you think about that? I've experienced a lot of people who didn't experience the best help from people who didn't understand religious trauma. Not saying that the therapist has to be an expert, but I do find that people would come to me or I've seen it, uh, um, you know, some people share in certain groups where I, they're not getting me. Like I can experience their compassion, but I could tell that they're not really understanding how, like you said, like you would say, well, how could these beliefs be so traumatizing <laughs> for some therapists and maybe even some Christian therapists? I, I may not get it. I want to be compassionate. It could still be helpful, but my approach or, you know, my advice would be finding somebody who has experience working with religious trauma, uh, being trauma informed, because there are some therapies that are a little more cerebrally minded. Uh, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, particularly maybe more old school folks where it was more focused on cognitions and having sort of the right beliefs and focusing on right beliefs. We now, you know, it's on third wave CBT now. And so the point is we know how important emotion is. So being with a therapist where it's not just you're talking, but if, the, if a therapist is not asking you where you're experiencing those beliefs in your body or taking you in imaginative or experiential work or doing EMDR, or a trauma approaches that have a lot of efficacy in the literature, I'd say you might want to find somebody who specializes and is, tra is trauma-informed in that way. Um, and then there's a lot of groups, uh, the Reclamation Collective, uh, Brian Peck's work, um, Thriving, Room to Thrive, I think it's called. But there's so many emerging people who are now doing workshops, uh, having courses on their websites, you know, working and healing through religious trauma. You do, on that, I want to say something really important about. There are people who specialize in religious trauma who are not amenable and really open to spirituality and looking at this stuff through a Christian lens. So if, if you take the scripture seriously and God seriously, you may want to find somebody who specializes in religious trauma and 
does, and it's hard to tell because some some people just have a a resentment. Uh, they specialize in religious trauma, and they have sort of this fu to Christians. You know, I just met people like that. I've met colleagues like that, um, and they do help a lot of people because there are people who are coming to them where they're like f Christianity. I don't want nothing to do with that, and then it can be really helpful for them. But and that could be where people are at, and you may think about that being the right direction. But if you want to look at things through an integration of Christian spirituality and the best of psychology, then maybe asking their therapist where they find themselves uh, in their Christian spirituality uh, can be really helpful. Um, and so asking them about whether they uh, focus and, and have done work in religious trauma and where they're at spiritually uh, can be really helpful in making an informed decision. Okay, I appreciate that. So, yeah, um, I wanted you to give a quick shout out for your book, basically tell people why they should get it. Um, I would strongly recommend it, very informative and helpful for me myself. Um, but yeah, go for it. And then also, where can we uh, access like any other stuff you've done or you have a website, sure. right? Yeah, uh, my website, markregatkaros.com, but it's more of a the therapy website. I'm not a big platform kind of guy. Um, I'm on Facebook. I just got Instagram. But uh, the book can be found wherever books can be sold and the Diabolical Trinity. Um, yeah, but I'm not, again, I'm not talking about the Trinity. I'm talking about the threefold beliefs of <laughs> and uh, primarily a wrathful God, primarily a sinful, depraved self and uh -huh. eternal conscious torment. Mm -hmm. So it's important because some people have told me I, I didn't buy your book because I thought you were talking about the Trinity. Oh. So I am not being disrespectful in that way, although people can read my book and still find it quite provocative and disrespectful, or at the very least, aversive, uh, if they're more of a conservatively-minded uh, person. But yeah, so I'd love to be in conversation with people if they want to reach out and just wrestle with me on these ideas, mm -hmm. and I'm also open to that as well. Okay, and specifically your book, I mean, you talked about a lot of what we talked about today. You also talked about, like, you know, if we should, um, how serious we should take these views that actually do end up causing trauma. Uh, you talked about, uh, very briefly, purity culture and a lot of other different beliefs that were really interesting. You went uh -huh. into a lot of detail about, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> from a cognitive perspective, um, in the head and all that kind of stuff. Um, this interview but a lot more detailed so i strongly recommend it um anything else you want to add as far as what I, something i missed there that could be helpful for someone yeah i'm just uh just want to say thank you for having me really appreciate cool. the conversation yeah sure um uh so all right yeah, yeah this has been awesome and uh, i really enjoyed talking to you i think people are going to get a lot out of this and uh, yeah everyone make thank sure to check zach. out his stuff and his book awesome right. thanks zach you yeah, too sure. okay